You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Dan Sennett of the National Security Practice Group here at Holland and Knight, and this is the Eyes on Washington podcast. This is the second in a series of podcasts we are doing on the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. I'm joined today by two of my partners from the public policy and regulation team here at Holland and Knight. First, Nassim Fuzel. Nassim, you joined the firm about a year ago from Senate Finance Committee, where you were the Chief International Trade Counsel. Could you tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure. Thanks, Dan. I help uh, clients navigate the intersection between uh, trade law and trade policy. And that really runs the gamut. You know, I, I, I do a lot of Capitol Hill facing work, helping to craft uh, strategic plans to address trade legislation, trade negotiations. Um, I also provide legal advice on uh, the gamut of trade issues ranging from uh, customs, all things tariffs, export control sanctions, um, and forced labor, uh, among other issues. Thanks, Nassim. And we also have with us today, Chris Galacy. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? I know you've been with the firm for many years. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Dan. So I have been with the firm for uh, going on 20 years, um, and my practice is pretty diverse. Um, I represent uh, all sorts of different clients, but I have a particular focus on technology issues. And lately, there has been uh, a lot of my work that's focusing on trade and competition issues. Uh, so glad to be part of the discussion today and, and look forward to chatting. Great. Well, we have a, a great podcast today. We'll be discussing provisions in the FY22 NDAA related to China and efforts to build a substantial U.S. semiconductor manufacturing capability. Over the last few years, there's been a lot of bipartisan concern over the U.S.'s reliance on China and how China's actions will impact our national security. In addition, there's continuing concern over China's record on human rights. So first, let's talk about how we got here. Nassim, how did we find ourselves in an economic competition with China in the first place? That is a great question, Dan. Um, In the interest of time, let's just start at the end of the last century, do just a a brief overview. Um, You know, there's a lot that has happened, but in general, there's been sort of a shift in um, what our, you know, what our goals are. Uh, vis-a-vis China. In the late 70s and 80s, you know, the overarching connection uh, sort of grounding our relationship was that we were each, you know, trying to counter the Soviet Union. And and that was, you know, sort of a binding situation for us, um, bringing us together, at least on on this significant geopolitical issue. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you know, we needed to find a a new uh, connection here for our relationship. And uh, under President Clinton, um, there uh, started to be a real significant uh, focus on China's entry into the market-based world order. In 2000, President Clinton granted uh, with Congress uh, 
China permanent normal trade relations. Uh, and this is what paved the way for China to enter the World Trade Organization. So China enters the World Trade Organization with a lot of fanfare. This is now uh, 20 years ago, uh, with the expectation that they would live up to the commitments of this rules-based trading system and you know, live up to the expectations of its trading partners to abide by this system and really enter into this uh, global market with a commitment to market principles. However, um, over the years, that has disappointed many, uh, to say the least. You know, just uh, quickly taking through some, some key points in this timeline, despite this healthy dose of skepticism that, that accompanied China's entry into the WTO, it was, it was broadly welcomed, I think, with this, uh, you know, notion that it was going to lift many out of poverty. Um, you know, this also this understanding that there were a significant number of the world's customers um, in China, uh, such a populous country. Um, but by 2006, what we started to see was a little bit more of a focus on China on this concept of indigenous innovation, uh, more so than following uh, WTO rules. By the time uh, President Xi took office in 2013, things had shifted even more. Uh, Xi announced the Belt and Road Initiative and then in 2015 announced the Made in China 2025 initiative. Put together, these two were a significant amount of industrial policy that we saw coming out of China, an increasing number of cases being filed against China at the WTO for failure to live up to its commitments, and um, you know, significant effort by China to expand its uh, economic influence and power across the world. And so, you know, by the time we got to 2017 and President Trump taking office, um, we started to see uh, from the United States in particular, a significant number of unilateral actions and a shifting you know, sort of political mindset uh, across both parties uh, on China. And so that brings us to today. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's quite a swing in, in 20 years. But that's that's a brief history of, of how we find ourselves in, in an economic competition with China today and looking at some of the policies we're looking at here uh, in the United States to address that. And, there, and there's no shortage of legislation um, that seems to try to address that economic competition and, and national security competition with, with China and the NDAA this past year has a, several provisions that we'll highlight. But Straight off the bat, I think one that's interesting is there's a, a provision that requires the SECDEF in consultation with SEC State to develop and implement a plan to reduce reliance on services, supplies, or materials obtained from sources located in China. So that seems to this seem go right um, at the, the issues that you've been talking about. Yes, definitely. Um, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think that's certainly how um, Congress is thinking about this, is just looking at what's happened over the last 20 years and trying to make sure that the U.S. is in a position to uh, proactively um, <laughs> address where we are now and where we may be headed vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, rather than being in a position of having to uh, respond after the fact um, in, in sort of emergency fashion. You know, it's interesting, though, that there have been other mechanisms, you know, outside of legislation, other attempts uh, to deal uh, with this growing economic influence exerted by China. And, and one example of that, uh, dating back to 2008, 
is the, the talks that the United States entered with a bunch of Pacific Rim countries became the Trans-Pacific Partnership Negotiations and now the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership Agreement. Uh, this was an attempt really to, to counter through uh, a, a trade agreement with uh, multiple parties so that it was not a unilo unilateral action any particular country was taking to counter China's growing economic and trade influence was also considered very much a foreign policy tool. Uh, you know, in, in 2009, when President Obama took office and decided to continue talks that the Bush administration had started, Secretary of State Clinton at the time framed the discussions as, you know, this significant uh, U.S. strategic pivot to Asia. And, you know, there is a significant uh, geopolitical, strategic, security uh, thinking there as well. So, you know, it's interesting since we're talking about the NDAA today, defense, security, you know, there has been thought for some time now um, about ways to to counter China. Uh, you know, as, as many of our listeners probably know by now, in 2017, when President Trump took office, he made the decision to withdraw the United States from the TPP. And so we are now not members. Um, and instead, there is this heavy focus on, on legislation um, and in a new initiative, um, which I may touch on later, but heavy focus on, on legislation uh, in, in trying to find a way to, to counter this uh, growing influence. So, so the TPP initiative was, was outside of the WTO. Is that right? That's right. And it seems to me that now we're seeing, as you as you said, sort of the rise of Congress being very concerned on a bipartisan basis about competition with China, and therefore it has moved more to legislating on this issue. Is that is that right? That's what we've been seeing, and certainly what we saw more over the course of the last four years, um, as well as some uh, unilateral actions um, on the part of the Trump administration in the form of tariffs and sanctions. Um, in fact, the, the Trump administration uh, launched an investigation under the United States Trade Representative's office into the um, non-market practices, uh, trade practices of China, and produced a report that targeted many of these issues that uh, U.S. companies were increasingly facing in China, top of that list being uh, forced technology transfers and intellectual property rights violations, and, uh, you know, decided as a result of that report under authority it has under the law to impose uh, a significant amount of tariffs on, on Chinese imports into the United States. At the same time, the administration was focused heavily on, as you noted, Dan, alleged human rights violations, uh, as well as sanctions as a tool to, to address some of those alleged violations and, and other issues, um, Huawei being key, which in the interest of time, I won't delve into today. Uh, but yeah, so all of that, I think, did create a little bit of tension with some of our allies, uh, this perception by some of our allies that we were we were working alone. On, on an issue that was really confronting many of us. So what's interesting that the Biden administration has done now is, is to take that uh, feedback and, and to, rather than 
rejoin the TPP um, as as many expected or hoped uh, that we would do, given that Biden was vice president championing TPP under Obama. What this administration is now doing and just launched is this concept of an Indo-Pacific framework, which will not take the, the form of a traditional trade agreement as we are uh, used to. And it's a concept that I think is very much still in development, but, you know, with a combination of uh, initiatives to focus on supply chains, digital trade, and notably will not have to go to Congress for approval. We have work in that lane by the administration and then a lot of work in Congress to to try to deal with uh, China in a number of different ways, many of which I know you are going to, to discuss throughout this podcast, Dan. Just to pull that string a little bit more, the, the Trump decision to pull out and sort of the rise of populist views, that was the main reason why we pulled out of TPP. Do you see a scenario in the future where we rejoin? I do. Um, you know, I, I <laughs> there is hope alive, uh, at least on my part, that, that this is something that we can do in the future. And I will just emphasize that it, I, I think it is something we should do. Um, I'm very pleased to see uh, that we are um, at least talking about a framework, particularly on on digital trade. But I think going back to the original concept, the original goals to counter a growing economic and trade influence from China, uh, CPTPP would very much still achieve that. And what's notable now is that in the last few months, China has sought to join the CPTPP. So now imagine a world where, you know, this initiative that was intended to counter China's uh, growing influence uh, would include China and would exclude the United States. Uh, So I don't think that that's a tenable option. um, And I think that that pressure is going to be felt. um, And there are plenty in Congress who believe that it is the right thing to do to join. But the politics of the situation right now are such that, um, you know, there are some very strong views, I think, on the um, opposite ends of each party, that there would have to be significant changes, uh, updates made to the CPTPP to make it politically feasible for the for the U.S. to implement and join. So it's going to take a while, no doubt, but it is something that I think should very much remain on the table for the United States because we cannot afford to be left out of such a significant organization. And, and I think the interesting thing to bring it back to the uh, FY22 NDAA, you had mentioned before human rights, and, and it seems that there are provisions in this year's NDAA that are both focused on very specific issues. Um, there's a provision in there that requires contractors and subcontractors to disclose if they have employees working any part of a DOD contract in China. Uh, There's another one that prohibits the DOD from purchasing from China um, personal protective equipment like masks, face shields, gloves, gowns, et cetera. So we have those specific prohibitions, but then we also have more strategic level and and human rights is the one that that you had mentioned, a prohibition in, in this year's bill on using any DOD funds to knowingly procure any products or materials that are mined or manufactured in the uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region. And that kind of is one provision that 
is extended then in a bill that was passed December 23rd, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, much more extensive legislation that establishes a rebuttable presumption that pretty much anything that's manufactured in the uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region will be prohibited from entry into the U.S. Now, there's some ways of establishing or overcoming that presumption, but but having that in place is really something that I'm sure our listeners and, and anyone who's involved in manufacturing uh, would be interested in. So I now want to transition over. The NDAA was used as a vehicle this past year to pass the CHIPS Act. And, and we've talked about in the past about the NDAA passes every year. It's must-pass legislation. So you'll often find provisions and other initiatives that are not directly defense related that end up in the NDAA. And one of them was the CHIPS Act. And that authorizes billions in funding to develop the U.S. semiconductor manufacturing industrial base. Now, the authorization was passed, but there was not any funding actually appropriated against the CHIPS Act. There's been quite a bit of activity this year on legislation outside of the NDAA that would both refine and fund the CHIPS Act and then build semiconductor manufacturing capability in the U.S. So I, I want to turn to Chris now. Chris, why are semiconductors a national security issue? Thank you, Dan. So I think anyone who's watched the news lately is aware that we have uh, issues with our supply chain and semiconductors are an important part of that story right now. Industries like the auto industry and, and several others are experiencing delays because there is not enough chip capacity. Um, so this has become an area of focus for the government, for the executive branch, for the Congress. Uh, everyone is searching for ways to resolve this issue. In addition to industries like the auto industry, semiconductors are essential for the technology industry and for uh, reasons of national security. And so the fact that the U.S. has lost leadership in this space over the past decades has suddenly come to the attention of, of the government writ large, and it has become a stated policy goal, a bipartisan policy goal to enact policies that will uh, put the United States back at the forefront of the semiconductor industry and semiconductor manufacturing and development. And certainly when it comes to China, there is a an awareness that China is attempting to do the exact same thing. And so it's a bit of a race. Uh, the U.S. has a significant lead right now, but China wants to catch up and ultimately surpass the United States. Uh, so this has become a policy goal of the U.S. government to make sure that we maintain this advantage and reshore some of the capabilities that have left the United States and gone overseas over the past decade or so. So we mentioned the CHIPS Act just a bit ago and understand that while the act has passed, um, there are some tweaks to CHIPS Act that are in the, the pending legislation. And then, of course, there's the funding piece that is, is going to need to be taken care of. And that's really coming through in two competing bills. You have USICA on the Senate side, and then America competes on the House side. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what these two bills do? Sure. So USICA passed the Senate this past summer. It is a massively bipartisan bill 
Uh, I understand that Majority Leader Schumer has has renamed it. And so instead of USICA, he wants to call it Naked in America. At one point, it was called the Endless Frontiers Act, which is my personal favorite. But uh, this legislation has been awaiting uh, House action for some time. And uh, recently, the House did respond. Uh, They passed the America Competes Act. And now Congress is working on a path forward to resolve differences between the two bills and send a final product to the president. Unlike the Senate bill, the House bill is not bipartisan. I think there was one Republic House Republican that voted for the bill. And there's also some extraneous, arguably extraneous provisions that are included in the House bill uh, that are not, don't have corollaries in the, in the Senate bill. And so those types of issues are being worked out now. Um, I think the Senate had hoped to avoid a, a formal conference uh, and perhaps uh, work in a pre-conference fashion in order to save time. But it appears there will be a formal conference. Um, we expect conferees will be named in the near future. Uh, right now, those decisions are uh, being worked out. Also, we understand that the paperwork from the House has not been sent over to the Senate. So that technical detail needs to be resolved. Uh, and then the Senate will have to go through a procedural vote in order to uh, head to conference on the bill. But Uh, All indications are that the goal uh, is to complete action on the legislation before Memorial Day. Uh, I spoke to Senator Todd Young uh, last week. He's one of the the primary proponents of the bill in the Senate. He said that was still the goal. So um, that's not a lot of time to get this work done, uh, but there does seem to be a commitment in both chambers and at the White House to to accomplish this. So that's the plan at this point, but there's a uh, a lot of details that still need to be worked out. And we had the um, the opportunity to work with a few clients now who are interested in using Ships Act, USICA, uh, in order to grow that capability within the United States to, to manufacture semiconductors. In your conversations with Department of Commerce, what is your understanding of how they're going to administer, let's say, the Ships Act? Yeah, so some of those details are still being worked out. There's a request for information that is that is out right now where the department has asked for input on how to do just that. Uh, behind the scenes, they have been working for months now, taking meetings and talking with industry to determine how best to implement uh, this program. This is a dramatic change uh, for the department. Uh, we're talking about $52 billion uh, that they're going to be doling out as part of the CHIPS Act. Uh, This is a department that has a roughly $15 billion annual budget. So this is a significant departure from uh, the normal mission of the departments. It is gonna be uh, NIST, uh, the National Institute of Science and Technology that's gonna be actually administering the program. But this is a program that's more on par with something the Department of Defense would typically do, uh, a, a massive industrial base program. Uh, So I think Commerce, uh, to their credit, has been uh, taking meetings and trying to determine how best to uh, implement this program. I think the RFI responses will be uh, some of the final pieces uh, that they put in place as they put the finishing touches on on their plans. Uh, But they have been meeting for for months on this topic and I think will be ready uh, if and when Congress provides the funding which is included in both the USICA bill and the America Competes Act. It is 
an emergency appropriation. So it is uh, receives special uh, budget status because of that and prioritizes that funding. The rest of the bill is simply authorizes appropriations for additional programs. That portion, the CHIPS Act portion, which as you alluded to, makes some very minor tweaks to the program, is providing the funding as an emergency appropriation. So it prioritizes that funding and it should be available uh, much sooner than it otherwise would be. And related to this area, I think what's interesting in the in the National Defense Authorization Act for FY22, there's already a statutory restriction that prohibits DOD from acquiring printed circuit boards from China um, that perform a mission critical function. Now there's some exemptions for commercial off the shelf, et cetera. Um, and this was supposed to take effect on January 1st of 2023. In the FY22 NDA, however, the implementation has been delayed to January 1st of 2027, and it further narrows the types of printed circuit boards that are restricted. So it seems to me that there is definitely an evolution of uh, working with industry and trying to work with the businesses who are supplying many of the goods and services to the Department of Defense and to the rest of the federal government about how can we responsibly implement these things without uh, having the economy grind to a halt. And so I'll end on this question for both Nassim and Chris. Do we think that the U.S. is attempting to decouple from the Chinese economy? Nassim, what, what's your view on that? You know, I do think that there are some uh, steps we're taking that may uh, certainly cause it to appear as though we're trying to do that. But I really do believe that there is a recognition, a significantly <laughs> important recognition, uh, both within the administration and in Congress, maybe not every corner, but it's there, that this is a large economy um, and, and we cannot simply decouple, right? I think that there are some areas where Obviously, there are some very stringent measures being put in place. Um, we've talked about forced labor and in particular, the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act, which creates this rebuttable presumption. You know, one could argue that that is effectively Congress's message to companies to just leave, right? Because the burden will be so heavy to, to work through this law and comply. On the other hand, you could say that this is really a, a serious recognition of, a, you know, uh, some serious human rights violations that we cannot simply let go by the wayside. But more broadly speaking, I think that, you know, the, these guardrails are being set up for us to almost uh, re reinvent this relationship, if you will. Um, I think that uh, USICA and Competes are an effort to do that by making us competitive in some areas where there has been recognition over these past 20 years that, that we are not um, doing what we should be uh, to ensure that competitiveness. And, you know, I hate to say, I think there's going to be some growing pains through this process, you know, as we try to figure out what exactly the right uh, amount of push and pull is going to be. But no doubt, um, you know, there will be uh, more measures coming. You know, there's going to be a growing number of uh, bills. At the same time, I think there is uh, an understanding that uh, we, we have to work together. Um, as I noted earlier in the podcast, uh, we have uh, a large number of uh, customers for U.S. products in China. And uh, that is something that uh, the U.S. Uh, does not lose sight of. 
And I think we're just trying to find the right balance for the competition and a way to coexist um, in, in this new economic order vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And uh, parting thoughts, Chris. Yeah, so I was, uh, when Nassim was talking about the PNTR vote in 2000, I was thinking back to that and I was working in the House at the time. Um, I was actually in the chamber when that vote occurred. And I remember the concerns, as I recall, were with losing jobs, uh, similar to some of the debate regarding NAFTA, you know, was the U.S. going to lose jobs? And uh, the concerns were about uh, China's treatment of its workers. I don't think there was a lot of discussion about a true economic competition between the United States and certainly not a national security competition uh, between the U.S. and China uh, back then, at least not that I recall. And so it's interesting that we've come this far. And I think that from the U.S. government's perspective, it has completely woken up to um, the economic challenge that, that China presents. I think you could argue that several years ago, perhaps there was a lack of awareness. And now we find ourselves with the government being hyper aware of these issues. And I, you know, I think there's the possibility for an overreaction in some cases. Um, I think that the politics has become uh, a little bit overheated on this topic and, and perhaps is pulling the policy a little bit further than it needs to go. We'll have to see. I mean, that's obviously a delicate balance to strike, but I think Clearly, there are some folks within uh, the U.S. government that would like to completely decouple the two economies. As, as Nassim stated, I don't think that's possible, and I don't think that's in the interest of, of, of either country at this point. But certainly, for some folks, that is that is the answer, and, and, and that's the path that they would like to head, head down. So hopefully, uh, the right balance will, will be achieved here. I think that's much easier said than done. I think this legislation, the USICA legislation, is a very tangible example of how united the U.S. government is currently. I think that the FIRMA rewrite from a couple of years ago related to the CFIUS process is another very tangible example. We're living in an era where there's not all that much bipartisan agreement, but on the topic of China, um, there, there does seem to be bipartisan agreement and agreement between general agreement between the Congress and the executive branch. So it's a unique moment in time. Like I said, I hope the I hope the rhetoric doesn't become too overheated because there are a lot of benefits to having economic ties between the two governments. But the U.S. is certainly uh, very, very focused on this topic. And, you know, I think when we get a, a final product uh, between uh, the House and Senate on, on the uh, USICA and Competes Act, that will be just the latest installment, the latest tangible example of, of that focus currently. So uh, we'll see what the next chapter has for us, but I am sure there uh, are more efforts to come on this topic as we proceed down the, down the road. What an excellent discussion today about the NDAA and the U.S.'s economic relationship with China. I want to thank Nassim Fazel and Chris DeLacy for joining me. We'll have more NDAA-related podcasts to come, so watch out for those. As always, if you have any questions about the material covered in today's podcast or how it may impact your business, please reach out to our Holland and Knight attorneys. Thanks for joining, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.